0: You. Hello and welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program providing a gender analysis of contemporary issues from Australia and internationally. I'm Giselle Hannah. On today's program, Women on the Line discusses the prevention of violence against women. Gender Victoria held a conference on this issue in June 2019. On today's program, I bring you two of the speeches delivered at that conference. Later in the program, we'll hear from Carla McGrady, the Senior Practice Advisor at Our Watch. But first up, Lauren Caulfield, who is the Advocacy and Law Reform Officer at Flemington-Kensington Legal Service.
1: Thanks very much for having me here. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the sovereign land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my deep respects to Elders past and present, to my Aboriginal colleagues in this movement um, for their leadership. First up, I'd like to really acknowledge both the synergies and the tensions um, that emerge across work to tackle interpersonal gendered violence and systemic and state-based gendered violence. Um, I think at the heart of at the heart of the work absolutely um, is an ethic of, of safety and, and community organizing. However, work to tackle family violence, including work that's that takes place and has taken place here in Victoria, has often built relationships with and advocated for the role of police and prisons without real critique and acknowledgement of their inherent violence, the harms that they entail. Um, And the ways that building relationships with them actually serves to enshrine and legitimize um, their role and often confuses accountability with punishment in the ways that we talk about violence and responses. Um, But also to note at the same time that there are very real challenges in identifying and building mechanisms for safety and interventions to family violence and harm that don't rely on the prison industrial complex and that this work is very much ongoing and that it's movement work. So I wanted to situate um, what I have to say kind of in that location. Um, And also to to reiterate what was just mentioned that I think that this engagement with police and prisons including at the response end of the family violence sector absolutely raises really specific challenges for the PIVOR sector in thinking about what relationships are built with those institutions. Um, so I'll be speaking kind of quite specifically about policing, even though I want to situate that in the context of a, of a police-to-prison pipeline that's, that's very much live um, in Victoria at the moment. And firstly, I wanted to locate this conversation in a post-Royal Commission um, into family violence context. So we all know that we're working in this post-Royal Commission environment in going through the many, many submissions that went into the Royal Commission um, from the family violence sector and others. There was a huge amount of, of kind of call for police to be centred as first responders to family violence. There were absolutely some critical um, submissions that went in that talked about police responses, but these very much focused up the reform end. They talked about things like training for police. And what we saw then in the recommendations from from the Royal Commission and then the associated funding was a huge amount of resources flowing to supporting and expanding the role of police as first responders. Extensions of powers, extensions to weaponry, absolutely um, a huge expansion of resources and funding. What we didn't see was any um, associated resources applied for accountability or evaluation or looking at the lived experiences of how family violence is actually policed in Victoria. And adequately tracking and responding to the harm of the ways that family violence is policed in Victoria is not a new kind of challenge or sector gap. It's something that's been a gap for some time. Um, and part of what we're doing at the Police Accountability Project in conjunction with FlatOut, with, Flat with Tarnin, and with others is, is working to respond to the ways that family violence is actually being policed in a post-Royal Commission uh, context. What we're noticing already are some really key trends um, in the harms and issues related to family violence policing. These are things like absolutely racialized and discriminatory policing. We're seeing um, predatory or violent behavior by police. I want to acknowledge also that all of this occurs in the sort of opaque context of a police complaint system in Victoria, where the the overwhelming majority of complaints about police are still still self-investigated by police. So we're talking about an organization that kind of then looks inward when there are complaints about the ways that that it polices. We're seeing um, a failure to enforce intervention orders, we're seeing issues around the misidentification of survivors. I know that there's been a 40% increase in the number of women listed as respondents on police initiated intervention orders since the Royal Commission, so it's a huge spike in police identifying women as perpetrators. And then what we're seeing is the criminalisation of survivors. So that includes criminalisation of people experiencing violence when police are called out to those um, to those crisis incidents, and of course we're seeing all of this in interaction with the racialized crime panic that's been happening in Victoria. So the um, and what that means for kind of punitive law and order reform. so mandatory sentencing, changes to bail laws, everything that Ray and Tanien have spoken about in in great and articulate detail in terms of looking at at the prison system also as a form of gendered violence. Um, And one of the things that we note in the Police Accountability Project is this tension and particularly a framing tension in whether these issues are understood, particularly when it comes to policing, as a case of kind of bad apples or whether we understand it as structural and systemic gendered violence. And every time we elevate, you know, uh, kind of one of these issues or something might break in the news, we see police get out there and they do a press conference and they talk about it being a one off um, or, or a situation where a particular officer needs to be needs to be trained, we take the opposite view and we absolutely believe that these are inherent and systemic um, systems of gendered violence. I also wanted to talk about this um, this kind of claim of bad apples versus what we consider to be an inherent hypermasculine and, and militarised culture that exists in Victoria Police. We hear about this every day from people experiencing violence. Um, and I think one of the insights that's offered into Victoria Police culture are the two inquiries that the Victorian Equal Opportunities and Human Rights Commission have run, one looking into sexual harassment in Victoria Police and one looking into homophobia and transphobia in Victoria Police. Both of these, there's some quotes up there, but both of these found unequivocally an entrenched culture of everyday sexism coupled with a high tolerance for sexual harassment. And also an entrenched culture of homophobia in Victoria police and a prevailing culture of masculinity and heteronormativity. So we're talking about institutions that embody the very drivers of the violence that we say we're working to prevent. And so that I think is a a fundamental challenge in terms of our engagement with them. One thing that I wanted to say is I wanted to talk specifically about the ways that we understand the intersection between interpersonal and state-sanctioned violence against women. One thing I notice in the sector is our kind of prevailing language that still, including in a risk assessment space, tends to talk about things like vulnerability and structural barriers, rather than understanding that The intersection of of interpersonal and state-sanctioned gendered violence happens in a really deliberate way. We know that in relationships where someone uh, using violence or abuse exerts power and control, that that person absolutely capitalises on systems of oppression in the ways that they perpetrate violence. So the family violence will be ableist, it will be racist, it will absolutely use those systemic structures of oppression in the ways that violence is perpetrated. And if we continue to use language like vulnerability, particularly when we talk about people experiencing violence, then we continue to locate those experiences of oppression in the individual rather than in the structures and the systems that actually are being used and exerted against somebody. And um, I wanted to conclude by basically kind of touching on a couple of the fundamental challenges that this throws up for our work. I think one of the core challenges that it throws up is a question around our engagement with these institutions when we choose to leverage them and when we make assumptions about either police or prisons as sites of safety. I've got a couple of specific examples. One of them I think is uh, in the push to increasingly train and resource those organisations to provide specialist family violence support, particularly to women who are criminalised. So an example would be family violence services training correction staff. To undertake craft risk assessment and to provide family violence support, when those same corrections officers are the staff who will then be strip searching women who are held in prison, given everything that we know about who's in prison and the experiences of violence of those women who are held in prison. So, that's probably one of those kind of like really clear pinnacle examples of what it means um, to be sort of trying to train organisations that harm people to then actually do specialist family violence work as well. The last thing that I wanted to say is that, um, just to conclude with a kind of comment around whether there are opportunities for the people sector, I think Ray already kind of covered this in the call to action, but I do want to note that I think fundamentally we need violence prevention strategies and analysis that address both gendered interpersonal family violence and state violence and a gendered analysis of violence prevention should and must also guide the way that we actually engage with structures that perpetuate these drivers Um, and finally that um, We need to centre the people who are most likely to be harmed by these institutions in all of our responses and actually listen to and support and foster their leadership in doing so.
0: And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You just heard from Lauren Caulfield, the Advocacy and Law Reform Officer at Flemington Kensington Legal Service. Next up, Carla McGrady, Senior Practice Advisor at Our Watch.
2: Let me start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose unceded sovereign lands we are on today. I acknowledge and pay my respects to their ancestors and elders. And I also want to acknowledge my mob, the Gamilaroi people, and my elders and ancestors because without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. The thing about acknowledgements though is sometimes I feel uncomfortable doing them. It's not because I don't think that they should happen. They absolutely should. But for me, it's like having to publicly share something that is normally a private interaction between me, the land and the old people. I do this everywhere I go, as it is protocol. So sharing that moment with a bunch of people I don't know very well doesn't always sit very well with me. It's not that different for Aboriginal people in most situations though. We are expected to give our cultural knowledge, share our practices and intellect in the workplace or on the internet or just anywhere, free of charge, or over and above what our regular duties require of us. And a thank you for sharing should be payment enough. We shouldn't just be acknowledging country without a depth of understanding about what took place here. Why that is important and what it means to acknowledge that in full. As I said we do this because it's cultural protocol and this is being shared by Aboriginal people for that protocol to be acknowledged and respected. This was not designed by our mob to be a PR exercise and in many ways it's used like that these days. Similarly The Aboriginal artwork on display in many offices does not substitute for cultural safety in the workplace. And when I say Aboriginal people here, know that I'm mostly referring to the work of Aboriginal women. Not to exclude our men in this conversation, but as an Aboriginal woman, that is the place that I speak from. You all know about the gender pay gap, yeah? where you may or may not be so familiar with the cultural knowledge pay gap. Which basically means people of colour are having to do twice as much thinking and emotional labour for half the pay or a lot of the time no pay at all. Asking Aboriginal people to be on advisory groups or engage in consultations without remuneration is just one example of this. I don't know of another space where organisations would engage a consultant without expecting to pay them. And advisory groups should not be the default to make up a shortfall in indigenous staff within your organisation. If this is occurring where you are, then it should raise questions about whether or not your organisation should even be doing that particular bit of work in the first place. My intention today is to talk about some things that we don't usually talk about or say out loud in a public forum. But Aboriginal women have been talking about these things and saying these things repeatedly for decades. So I figured it was time to have that conversation out loud. Because a lot of this stuff we just have between ourselves, these are the things that we talk about. Because we know about these systemic issues that contribute to these problems. Non-Indigenous people are often fearful of taking that extra step. The fear of doing or saying the wrong thing is often used as an excuse to not do anything. That silence and passivity makes the problem worse. This is not to say that Aboriginal women need saving. What we need is to be able to exist in a society that isn't continually perpetrating racism or still debating about its very existence. As Dr. Chelsea Bond so perfectly describes the process of truth-telling, this is not about whether blackfellas can be courageous to tell it, rather whether non-Indigenous peoples will be able to hear it. Whether there is a willingness to shift beyond feelings, to a commitment to shifting how power operates. This is hard work but one that I can assure you, the black fellow in your organisation, that lowest paid one, turns up each day working tirelessly to undermine it. And I can also assure you, shifting relationships of power from the bottom rung is much harder than simply talking about it. Talking about the truth and acknowledging it is just step one. What is needed is action. What that action looks like depends on a willingness to redistribute power. It's all well and good to want to be an ally but replacing the patriarchy with well-meaning white women is not the answer. The issues we face are broader than gender equality. Being equal to men yet still living under a system of colonial oppression is not what liberation is. And for women who are not white in Australia, we are still a very long way from even having equality, whatever that looks like, as women. The same system that creates inequality for women is the same system that racially discriminates, that is ableist heteronormative and xenophobic. Intersectionality is not diversity in your offices, although it cannot be considered effectively without it. What sits above and within these differing forms of oppression and discrimination is a system of power that enables and enacts it. Rather than just looking side to side and trying to consider other points of view, We also need to look at the source, where is this coming from and what role are you playing in enabling these systems of structural oppression to continue to exist? Who is is responsible for doing something about it after having identified it? It is not only about hearing the voices of those women who live these experiences, you must actively do the thing that is being asked of you by those women. Otherwise, it's just another day in the colony. We can't have a meaningful conversation about ending violence against women without talking about racism and other forms of discrimination. Racism is, in and of itself, a form of violence. Listening to the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women is imperative. And keeping the sovereignty of Aboriginal people at the core of the work we do in prevention is a fundamental aspect of doing this work the right way. Ultimately, what we do to support and benefit Aboriginal women benefits everybody. If the system becomes easier to navigate for those at the margins, it consequently creates space for others too. The big question now is, how do we do that? What we understand about systems is that they accomplish what they have been designed to do. If a system is violent, then that is what it has been designed to do. Transformative systems change is an intentional process designed to fundamentally alter the components and structures that cause a system to behave in a certain way. These systems frequently have elements of discrimination and oppression built into them, because that's how they maintain their power. It's not always obvious to those that it doesn't impact directly, and those impacts often creep in over time, or are framed in such a way that at first glance, It sounds like a benefit to most people. (coughs) However, it is the system itself that gets to define benefit. Who the beneficiaries are and who is excluded from benefiting, benefiting at all. Acknowledging that for the most part, feminism in Australia has been for the white woman and that issues outside a purely gendered lens have been put into the too hard basket. Changing the Picture talks about principles of self-determination and Indigenous leadership being at the forefront of this work. Again, the question here is how do we do that? Because it's all well and good to write about these things and to talk about these things, but how do we actually do that thing? There have been many that have come before me that have spoken about this and have been doing this work for a very long time. And if you don't know who they are, I suggest you do some homework. I don't have all of the answers and I don't presume to be the expert. What I do know is that I would like to have less of the we told you so conversations and more conversations that demonstrate a willingness to act on good intentions and allyship, that provide a platform for the change that is required of not only individuals, but of the system as well. It is Aboriginal women in the Northern Territory that warned of the dangers and damage that the NT intervention would do. 10 years later, they are the ones saying we told you so. Five years ago, Annie Jenny Munro set up the tent embassy in Redfern protesting the sale, 99 year lease of the block to build international student housing. On the weekend just gone, social media was awash with posts of people saddened by the loss of the iconic Aboriginal flag mural as it was finally bulldozed to make way for the continuing gentrification of Redfern. I have no doubt Aunty Jenny would be saying, I told you so. That outrage and that support needs to be channeled to when Aboriginal women are talking to you and asking you to act, not with the I'm sorry that happened because that's what prevention work is supposed to be. The way the health, legal, education and other systems influence each other shows that these systems do not work in isolation. If we have high numbers of young Aboriginal people filling our prisons, it's because the system is designed in such a way that that outcome is the most likely. So it should be no surprise that a system designed and built on violence results in one woman a week being killed Aboriginal men, women and children's overrepresentation in prisons, death and ongoing trauma are the consequence of a system built on violence. The Vic government is currently talking about negotiating a treaty while the Jabwarung mob stand on the front line in front of bulldozers trying to save sacred trees. These things don't occur as a random byproduct. They are the end product of a system built on a foundation of colonialism and genocide. It is obvious that we have a long way to go in understanding the systemic barriers we face in this country. Those are just a few examples of the way that that system plays itself out in all manner of ways in the lives of Aboriginal people. All of us carry trauma, whether it be our own personal experiences or intergenerational trauma, from experiences of our parents, grandparents and great-grandparents. And yet we stand in front of you, ready to continue to fight to stop that. There's a strength in that, And that's where our focus needs to be.
0: That was Karen McGrady and before her, Lauren Caulfield. And thank you to Gender Victoria for the use of their audio. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Women on the Line. Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR. The show is funded by the Community Radio Foundation and distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can email us at line at gmail.com. You can also download our podcasts from 3CR's website, that's 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Women on the Line page where you'll find all of our previous programs. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hannah and I look forward to your company again next week.